Well, good morning. Thank you, choir. You know, it is Christmas time. You know that, I guess, now, right? All the Christmas flowers uh, and uh, all the different things that are going on already in our community. And probably for many of you, you're already very, very busy uh, into the Christmas season. And uh, some of those are traditions. Some of those are new things that you've started. But you are probably, like our family, into the, into the midst of everything. I mean, you're in the Christmas swing. I mean, this is the time of year. I mean, it has already uh, started and, and uh, rolling full speed already. And when you stop and take, kind of take a step back and look, and all the details as to how we all celebrate Christmas. Yeah, there are some things that are just kind of, really, they're just sort of absurdities, aren't they? You know, it's somewhat absurd when you think about how we celebrate Christmas at times. For example, uh, camping out in front of a store to, uh, to get a gift for someone, that's just a little bit absurd, right? How many of you have ever done that? All right, let me, let me just see. I'm talking full-fledged tent here. I mean, you take, like, food, any of you? Okay, hands went down. How many of you have ever gone before dawn and stood in a line with other people just to get a specific gift. Let me see your hands, all right? There are a lot of absurd people in this place. I, uh, I have to raise my hand as well because I've done that, looking for a specific gift uh, for, for uh, someone special and sat out there, um, I think at like 4.30 in the morning a few years ago, and I was in my heavy jacket because it was freezing cold, had my little camping chair out there, and I was sitting there all huddled up, had a mask on, you know, because it was just freezing cold and uh, out in front of the store. And I was there before the workers even showed up because I needed to get this, this gift for this person. And, uh, and, and workers started showing up and really nobody else started showing up. Everybody else showed up about five minutes before the store opened. I sat out there for probably two and a half hours with nobody else even there. You know, I mean, really <laughs> just absurd <laughs> to a degree, but I got my gift. And uh, yeah, I, I elbowed one lady out the way and then stepped on another and got out there and got my gift. So it all worked out well. I didn't tell them I was a pastor and everything was was fine. So that was good. But when you look, you know, there are a lot of things that we would kind of say are somewhat absurd, you know, really when you think about how we celebrate Christmas. But let's just be honest. There also are certain elements of the Christmas story. When you open the Bible and you read, whether it's in Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke 1 and 2, that there's a part of you, perhaps, that you look at the details of the Christmas story and, and there's a part of you that says, you know, that this just seems somewhat absurd. And we have to stop and look at what the definition of, of absurd is, what an absurdity is. I, I just looked that up for you. So let's go ahead and bring it up and look. Here's the dic dictionary definition of absurdity. The quality or state of being wildly unreasonable. All right? That is the definition of an, of an absurdity. The quality or state of being wildly unreasonable. We can take that down. When you stop and read the passages of Scripture that deal with Christmas, there are some elements there, really, that are just seemingly wildly unreasonable. And when we, there's a part of us that feels a little guilty for saying that. It's like, wow, that's just, that just seems kind of unreasonable. You know? that, that seems almost somewhat absurd. When we read through the passages, whether we want to admit that or not, they're there. Now, here's the thing we have to keep in mind, that wildly unreasonable does not equal impossible. Just because something is unreasonable does not mean that it cannot happen. And whenever we then mix into the equation God who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is eternal, without beginning, without end, everything that exists exists because He brought it into being, that whenever we look at that and we work into the, the equation that there is a God, that he is eternal, that he has all power, that he has sovereignty, he is in control, he has sovereign will, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. When we mix all that into it, no matter how wildly unreasonable something may be, it does not mean it's impossible. 
And so what I want to look at this morning is a message that, that really just kind of, it, it's somewhat of a, of a flyover of the Christmas story. And it all happened exactly like what Scripture said. I just want to kind of fly over and get a 30,000 foot view, kind of looking down into the details of Christmas in, uh, in the New Testament. And uh, look at those things that may seemingly be absurd, but understand how God calls them to be and what the implications are for our lives. So let's just kind of pull some of those out. We're going to kind of move through, breeze through, and at the very end, we're going to get to a certain passage of Scripture uh, that's going to tie it all together for us. And so let's go ahead and look at some of the things that seemingly are somewhat absurd, highly unreasonable when we look at the passages of Scripture that lay out the details of that first Christmas. The first would be the virgin birth. The virgin birth. You can go into certain churches... I would be willing to say right here on this island, and in those churches, they will not preach about the virgin birth because they do not believe in the virgin birth. There are certain seminaries that are, uh, that, that are uh, training grounds for pastors and missionaries and church leaders in this country that will not teach the truth of the virgin birth. Because they do not hold it to be truth. They hold it to be somewhat of a myth or somewhat of an example for us to try to build our lives on the principle of to some degree. And yet when we look at scripture, what we find is, is that the virgin birth, as absurd as it may seem, as wildly unreasonable as it may seem, is treated as truth according to the pages of Scripture, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. Here's the basic story, that when you look at the story of Christmas in the Gospels, you find that, that God would select a specific Hebrew Jewish teenage girl, more than likely a teenager, by the name of Mary. Mary, at this point in the narrative, was betrothed. It was kind of a Jewish first century version of being engaged, but it was more binding than an engagement. She was betrothed to another Jewish fellow named Joseph, who was a carpenter. Now, when they were betrothed, the Bible would help us to understand, and also studying this, this, this uh, historical context helps us to understand, that for them to call off the wedding would have required a divorce. Though they were not technically married, as we would see it today, they were betrothed, they were engaged. It was like engagement plus, right? They were planning to be married, and it was in that set of circumstances, the Bible tells us, that Mary conceived the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And so the Bible helps us to understand that, and it says that she was over, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And so the child that she would carry would be a child that she would bring into existence. She would carry this child, the Messiah, in her womb, and yet the father would not be her husband, Joseph. It's interesting, if you ever read the narrative, uh, the genealogical uh, uh, narrative in Matthew chapter 1, it lay, lays out all these different people and who the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. But when it gets to Jesus, <laughs> it doesn't list Joseph as his father. Uh, interestingly, because Joseph was not Jesus' father, he was uh, conceived as the, uh, uh, from the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at the context of the virgin birth, it seems highly unreasonable that you've got this teenage Jewish girl who is suddenly carrying a baby, and it's not her, uh, you know, her spouse-to-be. This was brought about by God, right? Now, let me just ask you a question. I have a highly... I think a, a, a highly accurate suspicion here that you probably ne never met another person who was a, a parent, who was a mother, that also claimed to, as well, be a virgin. Probably you've never met that person, and if you did, you would have probably made a couple of phone calls to try to seek uh, help for them. Why? Because that does not happen. It is not the norm. 
The virgin birth, however, is key. It is crucial to us understanding the whole context of the Christmas story, that it was an absolute necessity. Why is that? It's because when you look at the plan of God, Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his purpose. He didn't come just to do miracles, though he did quite a few. He didn't come just to help people, though he helped many. He didn't come just to preach messages. He didn't come just to set an example. He didn't come to live a morally you know, uh, 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 superior life that other, other people could pattern their lives after, although he did. He came as a savior. He came to seek and to save those who were lost, those who were separated from God in all of history. That's the purpose for which he came. So when you look at our problem that we are people who are fallen, who have sinned, and we're separated from God, who is perfect, who is holy. Uh, That's an issue. Money can't pay that off. Our good deeds can't make that right. There's nobody else that can stand in our defense except a perfect sacrifice, except a perfect substitute. So when Jesus came, the Bible teaches he was 100% man. It is not a sin to take away from Jesus's humanity right? You have these conversations that swirl, well, did Jesus ever catch a cold? Did Jesus ever get sick? You know, did he ever get blisters? You know, was he ever tired? I believe, yes, absolutely. We know he was tired because in John 4, he sat down by the well, uh, right? He met the woman at the well there. John 4 tells us he was weary from the day's journey. I believe he experienced much of what we experience as people. Why? Because he was human when he walked this earth. 100% man. Why was that a necessity? Because if we're going to be made right with God, there has to be a substitute like us to take our place to pay for our sins. He had to be human. He had to be a man. He had to be a person so that he would be an adequate substitute. But that substitute had to be perfect, lest the sacrifice be less than sufficient. And so when you look at our condition, sinful before God, something has to be done to pay for that sin. There has to be a perfect substitute in our place. There has to be a perfect sacrifice to pay for sin. It takes one divine to do that. And so I think God's plan that uh, was a perfect plan, by the way, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, unstained by sin, to ultimately take our place. Does it sound absurd? Absolutely. Wildly unreasonable? Absolutely. Impossible? No. Certainly within the scope of what an eternal, all-powerful God could do if he so chooses. And that's exactly what he did. So let's move on to another absurdity. What about this whole idea of God becoming man? God becoming man. You would think that there would have to be one or the other, right? You either have God or you have man. Not both. It would seem somewhat absurd to think about both being captured in one individual, both God and man. And yet the scripture makes it very, very clear for us that's exactly who Jesus was when he walked this earth. He was fully God, fully man. Logic says no. Logic says this seems absurd. However, absurd does not mean impossible. God in the person of Jesus would take on flesh. It would be God with skin. (laughs) And he would walk this earth and he would ultimately die in our place, all to fulfill the plan of God to redeem people who willingly follow and trust Christ as their Savior. You think, Brooks, I don't know if I can reconcile those two things. You know, there are some here this morning, you've heard this ever since you were a little child. I mean, my three-year-old is here today, and she will have heard these things from the time she was just the youngest, like the other two kids that we have as well. For some of you, you were that person. You were raised up in a family, and when you were raised up, you constantly always heard about how God became man. His name is Jesus. 
And yet for others, you're older and you didn't come to hear the gospel until you were older. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. And that may be a real stumbling block for you as to how could God become man? I just don't know if I can reconcile these things. I don't see how those two things could, could, could happen. Let me just, let me, let me paint a little bit of a picture for you, a little illustration. Imagine for a moment that you were in a, a, th- a three-legged race. Remember back in the day, maybe some of you can't remember because you weren't old enough, but remember back in the day they had three-legged races that have like fall festivals and you'd put your leg in like in a sack or something and the other, your partner put their leg in there or they would tie your legs together and it was a three-legged race, right? Are you with me? Everybody with me? All right, so that's good. That's, that, that would, this would all fall apart if you weren't. All right, so, so you got this race. Now just imagine for a moment that I am in this three-legged race and, it, and I've got a partner. However, my partner is uh, Hussein Bolt, uh, gold medalist, 100-meter gold medalist, 200-meter gold medalist. I mean, I'm, I'm really coming out pretty well in this, into this bargain, right? Uh, fastest human on earth. Uh, I mean, just blazingly fast, Hussein Bolt. And so imagine that he and I are partners, right? So he uh, and I, you know, he straps his world-class sprinter speed gold medal leg to my, you know, little scrawny 49-year-old slow leg. And so we're all, you know, we're, we're, we're tied together now. And so we're in a race. Let me ask you this question. Whenever, whenever our legs are joined together in this three-legged race, does Hussein Bolt cease to be the fastest man on the face of the earth? Does he lose that quality? Does he, uh, d- does he no longer exist as the fastest person on earth? No, he, none of that changes. He is still as fast as he always was. He did not lay down his fastness. <laughs> he didn't lay down his speed. He didn't lay down who he was. The core of who he is, nothing has changed. He is still the fastest man on the face of the earth. However, he has taken on <laughs> severe limitations in this race, right? Because he has elected, he's chosen, he has willingly been joined to me. Still the fastest man in history, yet taking on significant limitations in doing so. When Jesus came to this earth, listen, it was God becoming man. It was God in flesh. That's why his name in, in the New Testament, in the, uh, in, the, in the gospel accounts, is Emmanuel, God with us. The early church fathers understood, the early church knew this is deity, this is God with us. And when Jesus came, listen... He did not lay aside his deity. He did not become less than God when he walked this earth. He was fully God the whole time here. Always has been, always will be. What he did was, however, he took on the limitations of humanity. Still fully God, but he took on the limitations of humanity. So that God who is all-powerful, God who is omnipresent, who is uh, everywhere at all times, God who is omniscient, knows all things at all times, when he came in the person of Jesus... He didn't lay aside his deity. He did not become less than God. He took on the limitations of humanity so that he could not be in two places at one time. Jesus would not be in Bethlehem and in Capernaum at the same exact time. He was one person with one body. That was the limitation that he took upon himself. And yet at the core of who he is, from beginning through history, including his time on this earth, he has never ceased to be God sounds a little absurd, doesn't it? Sounds wildly unreasonable. And yet, with God in the equation, that is exactly what he did. That on that first Christmas, history changed, and history changed in the most significant way, because it was the time that everyone had looked to when God would come down, God would become as us. God would ultimately pave the way to take our place where he would seek and save that which was lost so that fallen mankind, that's you and me, could ultimately know him. 
not less than God. He didn't become less than God, but he took on the limitations of humanity just so that he could get glory through the salvation of people like us. Absurd, absurd does not mean impossible. What about the star in the east, right? You've read the gospel accounts. You've uh, decorated your Christmas tree maybe by now, maybe not. But if you have, you put something on the top, maybe an angel, maybe something that one of your kids made, maybe a bow, maybe it's a star. That's kind of the traditional topping. And what does it do? It points us back to the star that God placed in the heavens to guide the wise men from the east. Scripture tells us that there were the magi. They were uh, um, well-educated. They were um, uh, astronomers. They studied the stars. They were um, extremely intelligent. And the Bible tells us that they, these men in the Orient, these men in the, in, the, in the east, saw the star in the sky. And in looking for the Messiah, God used that star, Scripture tells us, to guide them exactly to where Jesus was. Now, at this point in the narrative, this would have been about two years or so, more than likely, after Jesus was born. And so whenever, even though the, the children's books and the TV shows sometimes get it off and get it a little bit wrong, that star would bring the wise men, not to the manger, but to the house. I mean, Scripture literally says that, to the house where Jesus was, was found, probably, again, at the age of two or so. And yet it was God who used this star to guide the wise men. In fact, Scripture tells us they followed that star until it stood over the place where Jesus laid. Now, I challenge you tonight, drive out. Effingham County, Bryan County, some other county uh, a little ways from here. Find the biggest uh, uh, pasture, the biggest field you can find. Park your car, turn off your lights. Make sure it's about 11 or 12 o'clock at night or so. Turn off your lights, and then here's what I want you to do. I want you to look up to the heavens, pick you out a star, any of them. Uh, just pick one out, and then just follow that one all the way home, okay? It, it'll get you home, right? Anybody, anybody in on this? Yeah? No? Highly absurd, wasn't it? It seems highly unreasonable that God would do this. He would place a star in the heavens. However, when we remember that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, He does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, has free right and reign to do so, He's without beginning, without end, not dependent at all on any of His creation. He is completely self-sustaining, self-supporting. He is the Creator God. When we work Him into the mix, hey, He can do anything He wants with the star He created. And he took that star and he placed it in the heavens and we have it recorded in scripture that he utilized it and used it to bring wise men, people who un otherwise would have more than likely never met the Savior. And he introduced who knows how many people from their homeland to the message of the Savior through them as they came following the star that God had placed to the very side of the, of the Savior himself as they began to worship him. We don't know how many there were. Uh, History, tradition likes to say three. You know, we three kings of Orient are, right? Uh, gold, frankincense, myrrh, three gifts, so we assume. We don't know how many there were. And yet the picture there is that even in the face of such an absurdity, so highly unreasonable that God could do this, that he could steer a star to where he wanted to be, to, that others would come to the Savior's side. As highly unreasonable as that is, unreasonable does not mean impossible. And then there's the infant king. An infant king. It, it just doesn't even seem to make sense, does it? It's somewhat of an oxymoron. I mean, two words that don't really fit. Infant king. And yet we find that in Scripture, yet again, as those wise men came, they brought him gifts fit for a king. When the shepherds would come, hearing the announcement from the angels out in their fields at night, they would drop what they were doing, and they came to Jesus' side, and the Bible says that they worshipped him there. 
an infant, a baby, who did not grow into the Messiah. He was the Messiah. He was the king from, from the very beginning, from his arrival here, because he is without beginning and without end as God. Absurd? Yeah, never met an infant king. <laughs> but absurd doesn't mean impossible when God is in the mix. What about prophecy? You know, there's over 300 prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Over about a thousand year period that that Old Testament was written, over 300 prophecies that speak of a coming Messiah. The Old Testament, of course, would all take place before Jesus would come. The last of the books of the Old Testament would be written roughly 400, 450 years before Christ would come. And in that Old Testament volume, what you find, over 300 prophecies that speak of a coming Messiah. For the Jews, they would understand the Messiah would be God. For the Jews, they would understand whenever they would speak of a Messiah, that this Messiah would be not just God, but He would be their Savior. He would come to rescue them, to, to, to ransom them, to, to set them free, to take over. That was their view of the Messiah, that He would be divine. And the prophets foretold the coming Messiah for centuries. Again, over this thousand-year span of the Old Testament, in many instances you can find there is mention made of the Messiah, over 300 references. And yet when Jesus was born, and as he lived out his life, and through his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension up to heaven, all of those prophecies that could have possibly be fulfilled at that point in time were fulfilled accurately through Jesus. Now, the reason I don't say all of them is because some of those prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah are yet to come. Some will speak of the Messiah's second coming, which has not yet occurred. But of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that would speak of a Messiah that could have possibly been fulfilled by the time that Jesus' life on this earth was done, he had fulfilled every single one of them. The probability of that happening is absolutely staggering. In fact, there is a... Uh, there was a study that was done years ago. Josh McDowell makes mention of this in one of his books that he has written. A study that was done, and a separate volume that was written by a man named Peter Stoner, who talks about the probability that when you look at those, those, uh, 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 those prophecies, that the likelihood of eight of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person, right? the, the likelihood of eight prophecies which were written at least 400 years before the person lived, just eight of them being fulfilled in one person, the odds of that happening are 1 in 10 to the 17th degree, to the 17th power. That is an astronomical number. That is a, uh, an absurd number. In fact, it's interesting because in his book, Josh McDowell goes in to, 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 to explain this in a little more concrete terms. Listen to what he says. He says, that number... 1 in 10 to the 17th degree. He says, if we could take that many silver dollars, we could lay them out on the face of the whole entire state of Texas. All right? This, this is the probability. You take that many silver dollars, lay them across the face of Texas, they will cover all of the state two feet deep. So you got the whole state of Texas covered in silver dollars two feet deep. All right? From, El, from, from uh, Galveston to El Paso, north, south, everywhere in between. The whole state of Texas covered in silver dollars two feet deep. You take one of those silver dollars, you paint it red, and you toss it out in the middle somewhere, wherever middle is. 
You get a big old spoon, you stir up the whole state of Texas with this two feet deep of silver dollars in somewhere in there, uh, of which there is one particular silver dollar that is painted red. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple weeks ago who uh, was born and raised in Texas. He was telling me about a time when he had to drive across the state, drove 14 hours, never left the state. And this is an enormous state. Two feet deep, silver dollars, one painted red. You send one person out there to scour the whole entire state and he gets one shot. He can pick one of those silver dollars out of that stack. And the likelihood of him picking the, the silver dollar that is red out of the whole entire state two feet deep, the likelihood of him picking the right one in one shot is one in 10 to the 17th degree. The same likelihood of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies prophesied about him. And there are over 300 in the Old Testament that refer to the Messiah. And every one that could have possibly happened at the close of Jesus' earthly life, he fulfilled every one of them. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? (laughs) Just remember that absurd, unreasonable, doesn't mean impossible when God is in the mix. So you say, Brooks, what good is this to me? Man, I got, I got bills due. <laughs> I mean, I'm about to get you know, fired from my job. Our company is cutting, cutting back, downsizing. I'm behind on my rent. My power's about to get turned off. My kid, I don't even know where my oldest is. My marriage is failing. My marriage is struggling. You know, I'm not getting along with my extended family. You know, I don't have any peace in my life. I mean, th- th- so I don't, I, you know, what, what good is all this to me? What difference really does this make? A virgin birth, God became man, all the prophecy, infant king. I mean, what, what really, I mean, what, what, how does this unpack for me specifically? Let me, let me just give you a couple things to hang on to that I really hope you'll jot down. Just, just some implications of all of this that are going to help to tie it all together. And we're going to close with a passage of Scripture in just a moment. First is this, that God is very, very good at working possible out of impossible. God is really good at that. And wherever you may sit this morning, I don't know your circumstances, and I don't know what you may face. I don't know what kind of a health report you got last week. I don't know what kind of physical challenges you may face. I don't have any idea what kind of financial hardships you may be under. I don't know your family circumstances. There is no way for me to know the details of every person's life in this church, just as you can't possibly know all the details of my life. I have no idea what you face. But the one thing I do know, the one thing I'm absolutely certain of, is that God is very, very good at working possible out of impossible. And one thing we see at Christmas time is that all the details of this particular story, every single one of them true, is that God is able to take circumstances that are seemingly without hope, and he is able to take those circumstances, and he's able to do something that only an eternal God can do, and he's able to work out of hopeless. He's able to work out victory out of defeat. He's able to work life out of death. He's able to do amazing things that only God can do whenever those things are surrendered to him. Why? Because he's very good. He is very good at working possible out of impossible. That's one thing that I learned out of this particular passage of scripture or this particular uh, uh, time of season that Christmas teaches me that God is very good at working the possible out of the impossible. But then secondly, the thing we have to keep in mind as well is that just as God controls the details of history, and we've seen this just in the little details I've shared this morning, just as he controls the details of history, he also as well controls the lives and the details of the lives of those who know him. 
That if you know God, that if you have a relationship with Christ, that just as he orchestrated all of the circumstances surrounding the Christmas story, that it was at the exact moment in time. Galatians says that it, that it was at the, the, the appropriate time that the Messiah, that Jesus was born, that as he orchestrated the census and getting Joseph to his hometown and fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in little old tiny Bethlehem, that just as he pulled the strings and as God moved uh, things from point A to point B, as he accomplished everything in perfect timing, just as he unfolded everything and as he... Uh, uh, ultimately would uh, save the life of, of Jesus, you know, moving him from those that would try to harm him. And all those details God controlled, he also can control the details of your life if you know him. So what's the result? So trust him. <laughs> just trust him. And let me just say, let me just say this as well, that God is not a golden ticket, right? He is not the magic lamp. You know, we don't rub him three times, say a little prayer and get everything we want. It's not a health and wealth message. You don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And so what I'm not saying is, is that if you trust Him, yes, He works possible out of impossible, and so pray this little prayer, go out of here, and tomorrow all of your bills will be paid. Tomorrow your marriage will be fixed. Tomorrow your wayward child will come home. Tomorrow everything will be nice and sunny and bright and cheery. I didn't say that. Scripture never promises that. What it promises us, however, is that when we trust God in the midst of the details of our lives, and when we have faith that He can work something beautiful and something uh, according to His plan, even out of the ugliest points of our, of our lives, that He at times will bring the unthinkable, and He will bless us beyond what we could have ever imagined. And at other times, rather than delivering us out of the storm, He will walk with us through it. And he will change us on the inside. Remember that even though he was an infant king, and even though he was prophesied for centuries, and even though he was born in dramatic circumstances to a virgin Hebrew girl, and even though he was God become man, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus was still crucified. And it was to fulfill the perfect plan of God. And without that, man, I'm telling you, we have no hope in this world. God is very good at working possible out of impossible. Even in your circumstances this morning, he's really good at it. And just as he controlled the details of history, man, I'm telling you, he wants to control the details of your life. And what you need to do and what I need to do is constantly surrender those to him. First in relationship through Christ. Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. I need a Messiah. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. Would you forgive and take over? And if you've done that, and if you've given your life to Christ, let God control the details. Trust Him and walk in victory and joy as you follow one who has done so much for you already. And if you've never met Him, boy, you can meet Him today. That He came just for you to seek and to save. And perhaps the reason you're here this morning is not just to hear great music and be a part of vibrant worship and to hear a message, to meet new people. Maybe the reason God has you here today is to meet Him, to experience the joy that this season should celebrate, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be made new because a Savior, God, became man to take our place, to pay our sacrifice so that we can be saved and know God forever. We close with a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. You can just read it on the overhead, which I believe pulls together so many of these details we've looked at. 
the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the purpose for which he came. Look at what it says here, Luke 1, verses 31 through 37. The angel is speaking to Mary, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Absurdity does not mean impossible. Let's pray. Lord, in two services today, I think it'd be fair to say that there are probably a significant number of seats filled by people who face wildly unreasonable circumstances. Lord, those circumstances may surround family, may surround finances, may surround career, some type of failure, wrong choice with consequences that have come. It may be some unreasonable circumstances that are issues of the heart, intense loneliness or discouragement or depression. And Lord, the circumstances may have resulted in some feeling as though they will never, they'll never be any different. Life will never be any better. There will never be any good that comes out of their circumstances. But yet, God, it's the story of Christmas, every part of it true according to your word that reminds us that you are very good at working possible out of impossible. And Lord, you came for the purpose of saving those who are lost, of forgiving us of our sin, of redeeming us. You, you bought us back as though we were in the clutches of the enemy himself, and you paid the price that was required through your perfect life and your perfect sacrifice. You, Lord Jesus, paid what was needed that our sins might be forgiven. And so, God, we understand from Scripture that our lives are highly valuable. Lord, that if you needed to, you'd do it all over again. And, Lord, our lives have been crafted and created by you, our Creator. Not a one of us are the same. Lord, we are all completely unique individuals. And yet the one common factor is that we need you. We need a Savior. And, God, I pray today, first and foremost, that for any here that don't know you, that have never given their lives to Christ, I'm sure they're very good people, and I'm sure that they seek to make an impact and to do things the right way, but, Lord, their sin has separated them from you. And I pray today that they would see and understand the gospel like never before, that they need a Messiah, they need a Savior, they need a new Lord, not themselves as Lord over their lives, not chasing something else to be first, but, Lord, that they would surrender their lives to Jesus inviting him in even to come in and to forgive and to take over. God, for those of us who've done that, I pray that we would trust you in the details of our lives. God, that just as you control the details surrounding that first Christmas, Lord, nothing has changed. You still control the details of every life. And we can have joy and we can have peace and we can have hope because we know you, we know God. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make today to apply these truths to our lives, God, show us how to do it. And help us to follow where you lead. Lord, we thank you for what you desire to do in these next few moments. And we pray that as you, as you speak into our lives, that we would believe you and that we would bow before you and follow. So bless this time we ask. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.